Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would enable us by faith to fly and go to Jesus. Pray that you would help us not to be weighed down and beset by many sins, but that you would awaken faith in our hearts to be able to repent and to believe in the gospel that all that needs to be done has been done for us so that now the life of God can be manifest through us. We pray that you would open up our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. They say that every virtue has a corresponding vice so that a strong type A personality might be great at leadership but maybe sometimes will struggle with being overbearing or not listening well. Maybe a compassionate person who feels and sympathizes with the needs of others may struggle with recognizing and confronting sin and error in those that they counsel with. I can see a little bit of this kind of yin and yang in my own life, whereas I may, through God's grace, personally have discernment to identify problems and how to solve them, I also struggle sometimes with seeing only the problems and how they're going to ruin everything. This is one of the great encouragements of my friendship with Jim over the years. He's the opposite of me in this respect. When a matter comes before us as elders, he smiles at the future. He truly sees all the possibilities, but with me, not so much. I often only see the problems, and it can be a real drag to be on the business end of my pessimism. It's kind of like I'm by nature the guy who just throws cold water on stuff. You know, somebody says, hey, I've got a great ministry idea. And I'm like, oh, I can think of three reasons that's going to fail. And you can almost hear the sad trombone. Womp, womp. Now, maybe sometimes I legitimately discern an issue that needs to be addressed. Virtue. That's all to the good. But sometimes it's just pessimism. Vice. Sometimes I just need somebody to tell me, kind of like we tell our kids, you can turn your frown upside down. You can get glad in the same pants you got mad in. So I have to be vigilant over my own attitudes and responses. There's been times when I've come home from work, and Susan and the kiddos have been slaving away at getting the house cleaned up, and everything looks spick and span, and the first words out of my mouth are something like, what's all this stuff on the counter? So instead of marking and rejoicing in the good, I grouse over the bad. And the problem in those situations isn't really anything my family has or hasn't done. The problem is my attitude. It's me. So I have to check myself sometimes when I'm just walking into my house. What's my attitude? Am I going to let weariness and the cares of my work dictate my behavior? Or am I going to be self-controlled and let the spirit dictate how I relate to my wife and kids? Now, I know enough about my personality to know that I self-consciously have to decide not to go back to the well-worn paths and ruts of my habits. 
Otherwise, a dour demeanor casts a, a dark shadow over the whole family. And you know why? It's because a dad can either lift the family by his joy or sink a family by his surliness. So I've got to be vigilant over my own heart and words. Have you ever been around somebody who's like what I'm describing? And they kind of let this vice go unchecked in their life. They're not working on it. It's just working on them. All they see are the problems, never the possibilities. They're dour, sad, doom and gloom. Every time they open their mouth, it's like cold water. That is no way to live. It's not the way our Savior lived, nor is it the way that the Bible tells us to live. Instead, rain or shine, good times or bad, the Bible says things like this. Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Or even this, Habakkuk 3. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls. In other words, everything's bad, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. This world doesn't need one more sad, self-immolating Christian. What this world needs almost more than anything right now are hopeful, happy, joyful Christians. Who smile at the future. Not the kind of superficial, praise God anyhow, just sort of ignoring pain in life. That's not what I'm talking about. But the kind of Christians who know how to have joy in the midst of the weariness and the sufferings of this life. Christians who know how to do what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6 in verse 10. Who know how to be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That's what, exactly what Paul models for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7. If you haven't already, open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And we're going to be looking at verses 2 through 16. So in the last message, we had an entire message just on verse 1. This message, we're going to finish the chapter. But in our last message, we saw Paul calling the Corinthians to holiness and sanctification in the fear of God. Given the great new covenant promises of God's presence among his people through the spirit we have to be holy because he is holy he is with us and in us and so we are to be as he is now in this passage Paul's turn it turns to fleshing out what holiness is going to look like in the Corinthians relationship to the apostle and at the heart of what Paul says here is not his anger and depression over his trials. And he's in the midst of trials and persecution. No, at the heart of it is his deep and abiding joy in God in spite of and through the trials that God brings his way. So we're going to mark five different ways that Paul expresses rejoicing in this passage. He's going to talk about rejoicing in God's people, rejoicing in God's comfort, rejoicing in repentance, rejoicing in godly grief, and rejoicing in evidences of grace. So rejoicing in God's people in verses 2 to 4, rejoicing in God's comfort in verses 5 to 7, rejoicing in repentance, verses 8 and 9, 
rejoicing in godly grief, verses 10 to 12, and rejoicing in evidences of grace in verses 13 to 16. So the first thing is rejoicing in God's people. Everybody look at verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. Notice again there in that initial command. Make room in your hearts for us. You have to remember that when Paul's saying we and us, he means I and me. So his statement really means make room in your hearts for me. You have to read this in light of what Paul said in chapter 6 and verse 11, where he has already told them. He said, my heart is open wide to you, but you have sometimes been restrained in your own affections towards me. Now open, open your heart wide to me also. You be to me what I am to you. My heart is open to you. You have your heart open to me. And now he's coming back to this again, and he's saying, make room in your heart for me. And he's doing this on the heels of what he said about sanctification in verse 1. So it's like he's saying, you need, to be, you need to perfect holiness in the fear of God, verse 1. And you need to do that by opening up your heart to me, verse 2. And notice, Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. So there's a, a quick application here that's... We need to note, because it so directly concerns not just the Corinthians, but, but also us, all followers of Jesus Christ from all times and all places. If you wish to grow in holiness, you must open your heart to the Apostle Paul. And not only to the Apostle Paul, but to all those men to whom God delivered his word and to whom God enabled to write down his word for us in Scripture. If your heart is hard to God's word, then your heart is hard toward God. And you can no more follow Jesus than you can follow Jupiter. And if you would be sanctified, you will have a heart open wide to his word, and you will do whatever you can to get into and to know and to grasp his word. But Paul doesn't just leave it there. He gives the Corinthians reasons why they should open their hearts to him. He says, because I've never wronged you. And you'll remember that there was an individual in this church at, at Corinth who had wronged Paul, who had opposed Paul. And you'll remember that his authority was directly challenged and the congregation apparently just let this opposition stand to Paul. And so Paul was wronged by this person and perhaps by the congregation because they just let it happen. And so Paul's saying, I never wronged you with the implication that he was wronged by someone in the congregation. He also says, I haven't corrupted any of you, which means that he never taught or modeled anything to them that would lead people into immorality or sin. It's an amazing statement to say. I never corrupted you. I never did anything that would lead you astray. He also says, I never took advantage of any of you which means he never leveraged his ministry for financial gain, just to squeeze out whatever money he could get for them just for his, his own purposes. He was not a mercenary for hire. He was a servant of Jesus, and he always played it straight with them. If the Corinthians look honestly at Paul and his track record among them, they have every reason to trust him 
and to open their hearts to him. He has never done them wrong. That's the point. Look at verse 3. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. So I'm giving you, all, you know, my pet, my, uh, you know, basically certificate of authenticity here, but I'm not trying to sneak in criticism of you by telling you this. Paul's not trying to manipulate them to open up their hearts so that he can bring the hammer down on them. No, on the contrary, as he said in chapter 6, his heart is already wide open to them. He loves them. He has a real abiding affection for them. He doesn't want to hurt them. He wants to help them. He's in this fight with them, not against them. So much so that he intends to stay faithful to them, whether it leads to death through persecution or to life in Christ on the other side. Life or death, he's going to be with them. He's all in with them. So when Paul says something that's a little bit uncomfortable, it needs to be something that they can accept. This is not like a drive-by critic who comes into your life, who doesn't know you, and says, you look funny and smell bad. That's not what this is. Think Sam and Frodo. Think Sam carrying Frodo up to Mount Doom. Sam loves Frodo. When Sam says something to Frodo, you have to listen because you know he's there with you through life and death. That's what Paul is to them. And so he says in verse 4, I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. So in spite of the infirmity of the Corinthians' affection towards him, Paul still has great confidence that they will eventually prove their faithfulness. His confidence in the Lord's work in them gives him great comfort. It's for that reason he says he's overflowing with joy. There's the rejoicing. He's overflowing with joy, he says at the end, because he's got confidence in them. So you see what I mean when I say that Paul's not fixating on the problems here. He's confident in the possibilities that he sees in the Corinthians. Their past failures towards him specifically don't define his attitude towards them. Their present and their future sanctification by the Holy Spirit define his attitude toward them. And so for that reason, he's all joy, all hope, all love as he addresses them. But here's the thing. His confidence in them is not in them per se, but in the Lord who's at work in them. You know, Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. It's a very similar thing to the way he's talking in 2 Corinthians. But he's like, where, where's his confidence there? Yes, it's in their sanctification, but not in them doing it themselves, but God doing it in them. His confidence ultimately then is in the Lord, not in them. You ever go to the doctor's office and your doctor comes in and he's not alone, but he's got you know, somebody else in a white coat with him, maybe he looks a little younger, and he introduces you to Dr. So-and-so, and so this guy's a resident and he's learning the ropes. <clears throat> it's always interesting. They call them teaching hospitals not learning hospitals, because I don't think that would fill everybody with <laughs> confidence. <laughs> I'm going to the learning hospital. No, they call it teaching hospitals. But anyway, you walk into the doctor's office, and 
two guys walk in, and one of them's learning from the other. And um, he may even let, your doctor may even let that other doctor examine you. And if all you had was this new guy, the learning guy, you might be a little uncomfortable. But that's not how you feel. You still have confidence. Because, not because of the new guy who you don't trust, but because of the old guy overseeing him who you do trust. You know that your doctor is going to make sure that your care comes out right in the end. The reason that we can rejoice in God's people, like Paul's doing, is not because of some great leap of faith that we make on the basis of individual human effort, that they're all going to get it together, pull themselves up by their bootstraps and get their lives into order. That's not our confidence in one another. The reason you and I can be confident and can rejoice in God's people is because of the one who is at work in them, both to act and to will according to his good pleasure. So here's the question. Do you have confidence in God that translates into a love and affection for God's people and what he is doing in his people? If you don't, you don't really know God. That's not a throwaway. If your love for God does not translate into a love for God's people, I say to you on the authority of God's word, you don't know God. If you know God and love God, you will love the things that God loves. You will hate the things that God hates. And guess what? God loves his people. God loves his wayward people. God's patient and affectionate towards his wayward people. If you know that God, if he's in you, that's how you're going to be to God's people. And it's not always going to be a browbeating about their failures. It's going to be a confidence in God that he's going to sanctify his bride. And you will love that bride. Because to know God is to love and delight in his people. Psalm 16.3 says, As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. So Paul talks about rejoicing in God's people. He's rejoicing in these Corinthians. But look at the second thing. He's also rejoicing in God's comfort. Look at verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. So Paul now is resuming a topic that he had kind of left off in chapter 2 and verse 13, where he talks about his travels vis-a-vis his uh, contacts with the Corinthians. And so you'll remember in chapter 2, uh, 13, Paul says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened to me for the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So now, chapter 7, verse 5, Paul says that he eventually, um, excuse me, chapter 7 and verse uh, 5, Paul says that he eventually makes his way to, to Macedonia. He eventually went to Macedonia. When he gets there, still no Titus, but plenty of persecution. So as he says he's afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Now the fighting he's talking about likely isn't Uh, physical altercations. Um, That's not how Paul uses that term elsewhere. He's he's probably talking about disputes and quarrels, either with unbelievers or maybe even with with some of the believers who are there. So fightings without, disputes and quarrels, 
Paul's afflicted by persecution, which is a trial for his body. He's burdened by quarrels and conflict, which is a trial for his spirit. So it's no surprise that he also experienced what he says, fear within. This is not, I don't believe, the fear of God. This is concern and anxiety about his situation. I think it's the same feeling that he experienced the first time that he came to Corinth. You remember this in Acts chapter 18, Paul's in Corinth. Opposition arises, persecution. He experiences conflict. Paul's normal mode at that point is to leave town. And Jesus shows up and says, don't leave town. And he tells them what? Fear not. Fear not. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. But if God gives a direct word from Jesus to comfort Paul that first trip to Corinth, he uses a different means when Paul's in Macedonia. Look at verse 6. But God who comforts the downcast comforted me by the coming of Titus. How many of you have ever known a Christian friendship like this? A friendship in which God uses a single person to encourage you when you are at the bottom of your despair. That's what Titus was like to Paul. Paul was beat up and beleaguered by controversy. He was worn thin, hung out wet, and yet here comes Titus. And it's like balm from Gilead when Titus gets there. So Paul's comforted. Look at verse 7. He says, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. When Titus gets there to Paul in Macedonia, he brings news from Corinth. And you remember that Paul had previously had this painful visit to Corinth. And it was at that time that that member opposed Paul and the rest of congregation seemed to just sort of let it happen. And as a result, Paul sent a severe letter to them. Paul had to leave quickly. He writes them back this harsh letter, strongly admonishing them and calling them to repentance. And so he broke with them in his presence physically. And then he sends them the, this, this letter that's really tough. And there's this real question now about how that church was feeling about Paul. Paul sends Titus their way. Are they going to accept Titus? If, they, if they're mad at me, are they, are they going to listen to him? Paul was engulfed in persecution, conflicts, fear, and here comes Titus with the news. Paul, they haven't rejected you. They, they love you. They long for your fellowship. They've mourned over their sin. They're zealous for you and the gospel that you preach to them. And Paul's response to this, what does he say? At the end of verse 7, I rejoiced still more. When he got the news from Titus, it's rejoicing. Notice that Paul didn't say that his conflicts in Macedonia or the threats of persecution that he was undergoing in Macedonia. He doesn't say that that ended. Presumably, those trials were still occurring. And Paul says that in the midst of those trials, the comfort came. And it came from Titus bearing news about God's faithfulness among his people. I love the main protagonist in Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. 
I think this is like the second time I've brought her up in a, a sermon. But uh, I love Eliza Bennett because she's not a silly girl, but she's a serious woman of character, even though her family situation is low and humiliating. So when Mr. Darcy, the big rich guy who's of a, you know, a higher class, comes along and proposes to her and proudly assumes that she'll jump at the chance to be married to a stud like him, Eliza is having none of it. And she tells him, this is one of my favorite lines in the book. She says, I had not known you for a month before I felt that you were the last man in the world whom I could ever be prevailed upon to marry. And so she turns Darcy down, rejecting him because of his pride and conceit. But then over the course of the story, he begins to remake himself. He repents of his pride. She begins to see in him something noble and good and true. She begins to see in him something lovely. And it kind of sneaks up on her, but all of a sudden she she realizes she's fallen in love with him. And after, over the months, her feelings and her heart changes towards him. All she can do is think about how harsh she was when he proposed to her. And she assumes that her harsh rejection has pretty much ruined any chance of his ever noticing her again. Until the very end, they're walking alone. And he declares his love for her again and says he never stopped loving her. All her fears of having lost him are just blown away. She never really fell out of his affections. And there's this rush of euphoria and joy when the news finally reaches her ears. He loves me. Something kind of like this is happening with Paul. The Corinthian church's treatment of him and his severe letter in return have made him anxious about whether there was a permanent breach in their relationship. But then Titus brings the news and there is euphoria and joy even in the midst of his ongoing trials. What's the point? Don't underestimate how God intends to use your brothers and sisters to bring comfort and joy to you in the midst of suffering. There will be times when you are in the midst of great trial or grief and you are going to need to feel in concrete ways that the Lord is near to you. That he loves you and that he hasn't forsaken you. And sometimes that can happen when you're all alone in a kind of invisible, miraculous feeling of the presence of the Lord. That can happen. But oftentimes the way that the Lord will minister to you in those moments is by using the people of God to minister the comfort of God to you. That's what Titus is to Paul in this moment. And it's what the Corinthians renewed zeal for Paul is in this moment. So you have to cherish the friendships that you have here in this place. You have to be zealous for the unity that we have in Christ. Because all this stuff can be dissipated real quick by division, by anger, by rancor. You be zealous for the unity that we have in Christ and don't fritter it away for stupid things that aren't important or that aren't at the heart of our fellowship. 
recognize how crucial this fellowship is for your joy, especially in the midst of trials, because we are going to need each other both to live together and to die together, just like Paul said to him. We're in this for the long haul, come what may. So Paul's rejoicing in God's people. He's rejoicing in God's comfort. He's rejoicing in repentance. Everybody look at verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. So it's really clear that Paul wrote them a letter. A letter, not 1 Corinthians. It came after 1 Corinthians, but before what we know of is 2 Corinthians. That letter is now lost to us. But even though we don't have the letter, we know something about of what was in the letter because Paul keeps referring to it in this letter. And we know that the letter grieved the Corinthians when they received it. We know that Paul regretted the ongoing rift that seemed to be opening up between them. Paul's saying, look, I have no joy in alienating brothers and sisters in Christ. So... If you have a joy in division for division's sake, or just a joy in putting people in their place, there's a problem with that, okay? So, so Paul doesn't have like a real joy in that alienation, but his regret, though, was only temporary, and he says it's because he knows that the letter caused them grief only for a little while. Whatever their bad feelings were towards Paul, they didn't stay angry with Paul or turn away from Paul for good after he wrote them that letter. No, they showed the fruit of the Spirit. So look at verse 9. He says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through it, or through us. Which means, you suffered no loss through me. The point of the letter was not simply to make them angry. Paul didn't rebuke them simply because he likes to throw his weight around and show them who's boss. The reason for his confrontation with them wasn't selfish but spiritual. He wanted to see them change their minds and their behavior. He wanted them to repent. His end game wasn't to grieve them. It was to grow them. And some growth can only come on the other side of confrontation. Because some growth can come only on the other side of repentance. Repentance is a grace. It is a choice that we make, but it is a choice that is underwritten by the grace of God in our hearts. When Paul prays for, his, uh, for opponents of the gospel in 2 Timothy, and he prays for them to repent, he says it this way. He says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, which means just arguing if everybody for argument's sake, because you like the fray. No, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Repentance is something that God, through his spirit, grants to us. And it's one of the daily graces of the Christian life. Repentance is not like regeneration, which occurs at a point in time and is non-repeatable. 
There was a time you were unregenerate, then you become regenerate. It happens once. Repentance isn't like that way. Repentance is like prayer. It's a way of life. Just as you pray daily and perhaps unceasingly, so it is with repentance. Do you sin daily? Hourly? Minutely? Then you must repent daily, hourly, minutely. And you won't have repentance as a way of life if you are a proud person who can never admit when they are wrong. No, you have to have the humility to know that sometimes you are going to sin. And you're going to have to name your sin as sin and turn away from it. And you're going to have to do this continuously. You need to wake up in the morning and say, another day to repent. Get ready. Repentance is a way of life. Now, I could single out all kinds of people at this point, but let me just, let me address the fathers in the congregation. Dads, you are to be the lead repenter in your home. And if you aren't, you should be. If you aren't able to repent or to say you're sorry when you sin, and your reluctance is because you're trying to save face, because you think that's what leaders are supposed to do, you're not saving face. Maybe nobody's telling you, but that, that doesn't make it any less apparent to your wife and kids. They know what you're doing when you're not repenting. They can see the sin, they can see your hard-heartedness, and they can see that you're a hypocrite. You're not saving face when you don't repent. When you sin, you need to confess your sin. If you lose your temple, temper and blow up at someone, you need to confess your sin and repent. Your family needs to be learning from you what it means to be humble and to be ruthlessly serious about your sin. You're called to be the lead repenter in your home. Otherwise, you're teaching your family to be hypocrites. Don't do that. Live and walk in the grace of repentance. Paul's rejoicing in God's people, rejoicing in God's comfort, rejoicing in repentance. Fourth, rejoicing in godly grief. Look at verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. It's not enough to feel grief over sin. Just to feel it. Because Paul distinguishes godly grief from worldly grief. You have to know which kind of grief you're experiencing. How do you know the, the difference between godly grief and worldly grief? Well, you know the difference by observing what they produce. Godly grief produces actual repentance. Worldly grief does not. Actual repentance leads to salvation and life. Worldly repentance leads to judgment and death. If you become aware of a sin in your life and your main grief over it is that it's embarrassing you or causing you to lose an idol that you still love or it's causing you to lose a position of some sort, if, if that's your only grief, that's worldly grief. You're not truly repenting. You're just lamenting the loss of some idol that you would want. But if you're confronted with your sin and you see and feel the wickedness of it in light of the holiness of God, and if you take steps to end that sin in your life, that's, that's godly grief. 
That's the real thing. And it's what every person who has the Spirit of God inside of them will eventually feel about their own sin. We aren't perfect in this at every moment. But this is what the Spirit is working inside of you if you have the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not going to be experiencing this. But if you do, that's where the Spirit's taking you. So godly grief produces genuine repentance. What does that repentance look like? Well, it has both inward and outward dimensions to it. Inwardly, you feel about your sin what God feels about sin. You hate it and experience resolve to turn from it. That's godly grief. In fact, that's the etymological denotation of the word repentance. It means metanoia, to change your mind. But it's not really just merely a change of mind because there's not just an inward element. There's an outward element to this. Metanoia, repentance, requires a change of deeds. It's like what Paul preaches in Acts 26.20. Paul says, I kept declaring that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. So it's not just a change of mind. It's a change of life. A change in the concrete choices that you make from day to day. When we're looking at the Corinthians, what change occurred in them? Well, it was their behavior towards Paul after the painful visit and the, the harsh letter that he wrote to them. Look at verse 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief ha has produced in you. A new earnestness that wasn't there before. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. The godly grief produced all of those things in them. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. They knew they were wrong for not defending Paul and for letting this, whoever this rebellious person was, run amok against Paul. And Titus tells Paul that they are now eager to clear themselves. They are indignant with the one who sinned and have given him, a, and they've given that one who sinned appropriate punishment. They've disciplined this person. They are fearing God and they're zealous for Paul. And they're saying they're innocent in the matter, which means that they did not adopt the error of the one who had risen against Paul. Whatever their passivity was, that's over. They didn't follow him. They're following Paul. So Paul says in verse 12, So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness might for us be revealed to you in the sight of God. So when Paul wrote the severe letter, it wasn't merely to correct his opponent in Corinth, nor was it merely to defend himself. No, it was so that their commitment to Paul might become apparent to themselves in the sight of God. He wanted them to have clarity about where they stood, and now they do have clarity about where they stand with him. And it was clear by the way their repentance proved to be genuine from the inside out. Repentance proved to be authentic. You know, some months ago, I had a disagreement with one of my colleagues. I ended up getting pretty ticked off at this particular colleague. We were having this disagreement. And so you know what I did? I texted two other colleagues who were not in a part of the conversation and complained about this colleague by name. And almost as soon as I did it, I started to feel this check in my spirit. I knew that what I had just done was 
long. I also knew that this wasn't a situation in which I could just confess my sin to God and like privately get right. I had wronged this brother and I had to do all that I could to right the wrong. And it was humiliating. I had to contact those two uninvolved colleagues, confess my sin, repent to them. Then I had to call the brother that I was having the disagreement with and confess to him and apologize. I was embarrassed and humbled, but I'd rather be embarrassed and humbled and right with God than proud and wrong with God. It feels worse. The key thing here is that it would not have been enough for me to feel bad about it privately. I had to bring forth deeds in keeping with repentance. Absent that, I would have been a self-assured hypocrite. And it's the same way with you. When you repent, you make sure it is springing from a godly grief that brings forth deeds in keeping with repentance. Otherwise, it's all just talk. For the kingdom of God does not, of God does not consist in words only, but in power. And that power is going to change you from the inside out. So you embrace the power that makes for real, authentic repentance. Repentance is the way of life if you are a Christian. So Paul rejoices in God's people. He rejoices in God's comfort. He rejoices in repentance. He rejoices in godly grief. Finally, he rejoices in evidences of grace. Look at verse 13. Therefore, we are comforted, which is the same thing as saying, therefore, I am comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Paul's saying that, look, Titus was refreshed by the news that you had repented when he found that out from you firsthand. Titus's refreshment from you becomes refreshment for me. And now it's a basis for more joy in Paul. He says, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Look at verse 14. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. Paul had boasted in the Corinthians to Titus. Apparently, he had assured Titus, if you'll just go to them, no matter how mad they are at me now, I know that they'll come out in the right place. Just go to them. And maybe Paul had been feeling a little bit over his skis. Man, I really hope that they, they received Titus and me. I hope this turns out right. But they did come through in the end. So Paul wasn't put to shame when, when Titus showed up. And so verse 15, And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. So now Titus feels his heart bound to theirs all the more because when he came to Corinth, they behaved like Christians. They didn't spurn the words of Paul in that severe letter. They embraced them and they amended their ways. Listen, our unity together is not going to be in a superficial glossing over of differences and conflicts. It's going to, our unity is going to be when we work through those conflicts and when our unity is in the truth. That's where Paul's rejoicing is right here. They treated Titus, a delegate of Paul, with the same deference and respect that they owed to Paul himself. Because it says they received him with fear and trembling. Titus came on Paul's behalf, and they're responding to the apostle when they respond to Titus. 
And so verse 16, what does he finish with? I rejoice. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Paul knows that he who began a good work in them will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And it becomes the basis for his joy. You all remember what John said in 3 John verses 3 and 4? For I was very glad when brethren came and bore witness to your truth. That is how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, than to hear of my children walking in the truth. That's what Paul's saying in this text. In spite of all of his afflictions and conflicts, in spite of all of his worry and fears, he rejoices in the grace of God at work in God's people. That connection to God's people is what makes him able to be always sorrowful, but yet always rejoicing. Is that where your heart is at the end of the day? When you see your brothers and sisters at Kenwood Baptist Church, what do you see? Do you just see the problems? Or do you see what God is doing in and among all of these imperfect saints? That's the key question. And I would urge you that God wants us to readjust our hearts so that we're not just tuned into the problems. We're not ignoring the problems. We're not ignoring conflicts that we have to work through from time to time. But that's not what we fixate on. We rejoice in the grace of God at work in one another. That's where our hope is and what God is doing. And when somebody's taking baby steps, you don't fixate on the baby part. You fixate on the steps, right? That's what you do. We rejoice in God's people. We rejoice in God's comfort. We rejoice in repentance. We rejoice in godly grief. And we rejoice in evidences of grace in whatever measure we get to see them. If you're here and you don't know this grace, you are not a Christian. And you know it. The Bible says that all People have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. That includes me. That includes you. The Bible also says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God has enemies. God loves his enemies. That means he loves you so much that he sent his son. You can't earn salvation. Jesus earned it for you by dying on the cross and taking the penalty of death that you deserve and by raising up from the grave and accomplishing for us eternal life so that if you repent of your sin and believe in Jesus, the Bible says you will be saved and you will never die. And if you haven't done that, you need to believe today. Let me pray. Father, we pray that you would produce in us regular, continuous, overcoming, godly repentance that does not lead to death, that is not hypocritical, but looks full on 
at sin, sees it as you sees it, and then turns from it. Help us to love being right with you more than saving face. Help us to be contrite, humble people. Help us to be like Jesus. I pray for those who are here who don't know you. I pray that you would awaken in them faith. Help them to believe in the gospel and be saved. Lord, make us the kind of people in this church that are fruitful and that see lost people come to you because of the way that you changed us. Help us, Lord, we pray, and ask your mercy in Jesus' name. Amen.